0: All of us know that children love stories and actually adults love stories too, but there are some challenges. Eugene Peterson has written about it. He says, as soon as children acquire a working knowledge of the language, they demand stories. The people who tell the stories are their elders. We start out in language, listening to stories. We end up, if we are fortunate, telling stories. In between, in the rush to make a living, check out the stock market quotations, learn to program a computer, put together a sermon, we often abandon story listening and storytelling for what we suppose are more practical uses of language. But you've all taken out at least an hour and a half or two hours of your life this morning to take a break from making a living and checking the stock market and doing all those things. And so we want to... Here's some stories. I want to tell you two stories today. One is a long one, one's a short one. The long, short one will come at the end. The long one is from one of Jesus' biographers, Luke, in his gospel. And I'd like you to listen to them the way kids love listen to stories. You haven't shown a child to ask at the beginning of a story, what does this mean for my life? They're not worried about relevance. So I don't want you to worry about the relevance of this story to your life this morning. Don't worry about practical applications. OK, listen like they listen. They just enjoy the process of the story being uh, told. The other thing is this is true even if they know the story. That's because they don't just listen to the facts. They actually enter the story and begin to live in it. So those are the two kind of frames of mind in which I would like you to listen to these stories. Enjoy the process, don't worry about its practical relevance to your life, and see if there is some place where you connect into the story. It was Easter Sunday morning? The reality of the cross still cast a heavy shadow upon the collective consciousness of the disciples. In that passage that we read for us, two women made their way to the tomb to finish the work of embalming the body. And they were preoccupied with the stone. To their surprise, they find the stone rolled away and they don't see the body of Jesus. And they encounter an individual who says this. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel... And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? That was the question that gripped my heart. Why do we look for the living among the dead? And in order to sharpen that question and give a response to it, Luke goes on to tell another story. Again, we find two men, two disciples on the move. One of them is a man for sure, we don't know who the other one was. They're on a journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Most Bible scholars tell us it's probably about a seven mile journey. And they are deep in conversation with each other. They're so deeply engrossed that they don't even know that somebody else, a stranger, has joined himself to them. And the stranger wants to know what they're talking about that was so deep that they didn't even know that he had shown up. Here's the conversation that happened. As they stood still looking sad, one of them named Cleopas answered him and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there these days? In other words, how come you aren't talking about it too? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. I mean, you have to start by the irony of this as well. They're all telling Jesus, don't you know all these things, you know? Because he did they didn't know who he was. He was they were kept from recognizing him. But but notice those two phrases that I've emphasized there for you. Notice the tenses. He was a prophet, mighty indeed and word. We had hoped That he would one day deliver Israel and bring us out of this 500-year journey of bondage to foreign peoples. It was all in the past, and underneath this was two questions, probably a couple more questions. He has been our life for these three years. How are we going to relate to him now? And what of this mission that we've been on? Who's going to send us? Who do we represent? These are all the questions that I've be talking about. You see the cross had destroyed their hopes for deliverance, national deliverance. Had taken away a beloved relationship. And had called into question their very purpose for existence with no mission. That was how thoroughly the cross had devastated them. And these were the things they had been talking about. And in that unguarded moment to a total stranger, as sometimes we can do, they were just pouring out their hearts to him. Perhaps they did not even recognize the extent of their despair until that moment when they were telling him. Remember how so often we find that too. It is when we finally articulate it to somebody else that we don't even realize how much we were hurting. And then all of a sudden, the actors switch stage. The one who was passive and listening quietly all this time suddenly takes over, and the ones who were talking get quiet and they listen. And he begins to speak to them. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophecy interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. My goodness, what a sermon that must have been. You know. I mean, they didn't know who this person was. But he obviously knew their scriptures well. And from Moses, which probably means from Genesis on. He just kept talking all the while, while they were walking. He kept talking to them. About how every one of those... Books of the Bible properly understood was in some way or another teaching this one thing that this this Messiah of theirs had to die before he would be glorified. That was the one theme he was tracing throughout the scriptures. And boy, that journey must have passed really fast. It's like when, when we are driving someplace, if we're listening to a really engaging story, we don't even realize how quickly time has passed. I remember the time when we took our kids for the first time to Disney World. Sheila was eight and Vijay was five. We had determined we would never do that Disney World trip until they got to at least five, you know. And on the the last day coming back, we left Chattanooga at 8 o'clock in the morning. And our goal was to get to Toledo by 7 in the evening and sleep over and get in the next morning. But by the time we finished dinner, it was 7. We said to the kids, we're only five hours away. Do you want to go home? Yeah, we will. And you know, we finished a 15-hour journey. Those kids didn't fall asleep at all. And one of the things that kept them going was, we had a whole bunch of tapes that were British Shakespeare and actors that had dramatized all of the Old Testament. And they just kept listening to one story after another. That's the power of a story to engage it. And something like that must have happened with this fascinating exposition of scriptures. They didn't even know. And the seven miles just rolled along, and no time at all, it was evening. And so they said, come, come, why don't you come and eat with us? So once again, this stranger takes over. They still don't know who he is. Only this time, he doesn't break in upon them with a magnificent sermon. It's his action. They sit down, he breaks bread, and he gives thanks. And in that moment, their eyes are open. They say, this is Jesus. And he's gone from them at that moment. The past tense has become present. (laughs) He not was, was a prophet mighty indeed. He now is the prophet mighty indeed. No, there was no past tense for Jesus anymore. The past had been swallowed up by an incredible, unexpected present. And their eyes were opened to see Jesus. Look at their reaction. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Before the stranger joined himself to them, their minds were confused. They couldn't make any sense of what had happened on Good Friday. A tumultuous, unexpected end to three magnificent years didn't end the way they wanted. And now this empty tomb, their minds were completely confused. There was no clarity of thinking. And as for their hearts. Their hearts were sluggish. Despondency and despair do that to a heart. They are incapable of feeling anything. Sluggish hearts. Confused minds. But as soon as he began to talk. And unfold those scriptures. Their minds were instructed. And their hearts began to burn. And they understood for the first time. The significance of these events. Including the significance of the empty tomb. And you know something? When the mind is clear, when the heart is inflamed with passion, and the eyes see Jesus clearly, the body can no longer limit us. <laughs> and they forgot all about the fact that they were red, tired at the end of a long journey. They forgot about sleep, and they turned around and went all the way back seven miles. That isn't seven miles on our car on the highway. <laughs> It's probably a two hour journey. Back to Jerusalem. Because they had to tell their colleagues. But so they didn't know that some of them already knew about this. But they went all the way back. in This in a nutshell is the story of Easter. It begins with disheartened disciples dead in their spirit. Going to look for the living among the dead. And it ends with the living one invading their deadness and bringing them new life. That's the story of Easter in a nutshell. Today, 2,000 years later, many, many people are still, still living in between the cross and the empty tomb. They're still looking for the living among the dead. Some have consigned Jesus to the grave 2,000 years ago. He was a great prophet. He was the founder of a great religion. But he's dead and gone, body decayed like anybody else's. Others, maybe adherents of many mainline denominations within the Christian faith, would acknowledge, yes, there's Easter, yes, he rose from the dead. But they consign him to heaven, wrapped up there. Yeah, he shows up on Christmas and he shows up on Easter and we kind of tip the hat to him. But for all practical purposes, the risen Lord Jesus makes no difference to our lives. But you know, such a Jesus is very attractive. He's safe. (laughs) He can't surprise us. He only acts within the limits that we have confined. Whether the limits of a grave or or a distant heaven that doesn't have anything to do with earth. Such a Jesus we control. But a living Lord Jesus Christ. Who breaks out of any boxes that we put him into. Who insists on invading our carefully structured and planned lives and worlds. A Jesus who takes over and controls us, that's not the Jesus that we bargained for. And so you can see why people would consign him to a grave or just to heaven. Doesn't matter which one, they're both equally irrelevant. But if we could only realize it, this living Jesus is the best news that we possibly have because he can come today into lives that are hopeless, that have lost any sense of purpose. That long for intimacy. In the only relationship that can transform. He can join himself to us. He can call forth that pouring out of emotion from our hearts. And then he can begin to instruct minds. impassion hearts so they begin to feel again. And redefine a mission that gives purpose to life. That's the best possible news we can have. Now, it isn't Luke's purpose in this uh, section of Scripture or mine in this sermon to give evidences for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But very briefly, they are there, they are inescapable. Let me just mention some of them. First of all, the fact that the women were the first witnesses. Nobody fabricating a story of like this in the first century, if the resurrection was a fabrication, would ever have chosen to make women the first witnesses of that event. They were not considered credible witnesses in the first century, in that culture. Secondly, every instance of the disciples hearing the news that Jesus had risen from the dead was not met with enthusiasm, but was met with unbelief. They dismissed the story of the women as nonsense. So much for all those theories that try to explain the resurrection appearances as hallucinations. People hallucinate about things and events that they are expecting and want to happen. Nobody hallucinates about things that they didn't expect to happen. And didn't believe when somebody told them it happened. And as for the other theory. Which was actually spread because the chief priests paid the guards to tell the story. The disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. No one would be fabricating an event. And then proclaiming it. That they themselves did not believe it, And then remember when Jesus asked them, what things are you talking about? They said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know all these things? All the things that happened surrounding the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus were done in public. Everybody knew about it. To go into a community like this and begin to preach that Jesus rose from the dead. If that was a fabrication, it would have been the easiest one to disprove in a moment. Nobody had to persecute those people. All they had to do was to go to the tomb and parade the dead body of Jesus up and down the street. And Christianity would have been finished 2,000 years ago. You and I wouldn't be here today. But they couldn't. There was no body. The tomb was empty. And then, of course, we have the transformation of these disciples. These, these totally despondent, downcast, distressed, fearful, frightened, huddled disciples suddenly were thrust out into a hostile world and changed the Roman world upside down. Just a few of the many, many, and I could go on, but that's in the purpose of this message. These were just implicit right in this account. The the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is, is, is there. But the implications, practical implications are massive. He's a living Jesus who can be known intimately. And in the context of that intimacy, he transforms us. Great religious leaders of the past are dead and the present ones will die. So too for the great economic leaders and the political leaders of our time. They're all dead. And the ones that are not yet yet will die. Only Jesus lives. And to some of you who have confined him to a grave 2,000 years ago, he says, stop looking for the living among the dead. Come to Him. Come to me. And this Easter may be a great opportunity for you to begin that relationship. Because living a relationship with Jesus makes sense only because Jesus is alive. He's not just an idea. And for many others of us who, who might believe that He rose from the dead, but really for all practical purposes, we buried Him away in this heaven someplace. One who'll still only act within our limits. No, come to Him. Ask him to join himself to you. And he can do those same things for you that he did for these two men. He can take confused minds and instruct them all over again. He can take dead hearts that are incapable of feeling and set them burning with passion once again. He can open eyes to see the glory of Jesus so that those songs we sang actually begin to make sense. And as a result of transformed minds and hearts and open eyes, our bodies get energized and we are sent on a mission. Which is the only mission in this world that has power to sustain us. And give us meaning for as long as we live. That's the glorious possibility of Easter. And so Luke now moves very quickly to that mission part of it. The disciples get back. They they find the people in the room. And they share this news with them. And they've discovered that Peter has already seen Jesus. And he has brought that news back. And suddenly Jesus appears to them. Confirming the testimony of these two men. Confirming the fact that it's not just a ghost, and he does it in such a practical way, he says, Does anybody have some fish? How theological is that? The resurrection is, in C.S. Lewis' his immortal words, the resurrection is as literal as broiled fish. Spirits don't eat fish, hallucinations don't eat fish. Jesus ate it just for that purpose. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I did a little bit of digging uh, into the the Greek words behind open and understand. And they have have a rich variety of meaning. But when I took some of those meanings and put them together, it was just a beautiful picture that emerged of what Jesus was doing here. The, The idea, I think, is something like this. He was taking disparate unconnected pieces that they didn't put together and he connected them all together into a whole so it made sense. He was telling them the whole story, how how he fit in. The earlier sermon, the earlier sermon was all about how did these scripture on the road that set them burning was well, how do every one of the scriptures from Genesis on speak about the fact that Christ had to die before he was glorified. This one goes one step further. If all of all the events before have been leading right up to the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection, now what's going to happen from now till end? He said, this is the essence of scriptures. What is the essence of all of scripture? Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Your mission isn't finished, it's just beginning. This is what it's been all about. The Christ must die. He must be glorified. Raised from the dead on the third day. And now you can be absolutely confident. That you can preach this message of forgiveness of sins. Starting from here to the whole world. You guys were lamenting that the hope of Israel was gone. I'm telling you I'm alive and I'm the hope of the whole world. He not only gave them back their mission. He multiplied it and enlarged it. Beyond anything he could ever have imagined. Because he lives. This is the scripture, the witness of scripture in a nutshell is this, that missions in the name of Jesus, preaching of forgiveness of sins, of which we can be confident because Jesus rose from the dead. The cross only makes sense, or I'm sorry, we can only believe what the, the meaning of the cross because Jesus rose from the dead. Without the resurrection, there would be no confidence in us that our sins are truly forgiven the entire theology of the cross we have confidence in it only because there is an empty tomb only because Jesus rose from the dead and so we can preach and believe it and preach it and teach it with confidence but one more thing is needed and luke finished with these words and behold i am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high he's talking about the work of the spirit the holy spirit you see Jesus still instructs minds, but we don't hear those words with these physical ears. Jesus still inflames our hearts and opens our eyes to see him, but we don't see him with these eyes. All of this happens in invisible reality, by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who takes the power of a risen Jesus... And makes them alive in our hearts so our minds are illumined, our hearts are inflamed, our bodies are energized and our eyes are open to see Jesus. So the work of the spirit in invisible reality, applying the reality of Jesus risen from the dead to us, has then effect invisible reality. And we are energized and then we go out and we live and do the work he's called us to. Now of course this happened specifically at Pentecost, about 50 days after this. 120 disciples of Jesus experienced the spirit coming and we will celebrate that 50 days from now, 7 weeks from now on Pentecost Sunday. But he's continued to come throughout history too. Whenever the church has lost its zeal. Whenever the church finds itself like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We had hoped. But somebody else proved to be stronger and crucified him. He was a prophet. And you know, brothers and sisters, it is at this point that the story connects most closely to you and I today in North America. Because it is so easy in the world that we live in today, especially within North America, to lose hope. To lose a sense of mission. The vitality of that personal relationship with the living Lord. It was at this point that I began to ask myself a question. What would an Emmaus Road conversation look like this side of the cross? <laughs> that side of the cross, if it was just—it was a crucified Savior. And they didn't know what was going to happen. What would it look this side of the cross? We already know that Jesus rose from the dead. That surprise is not there anymore. What would an Emmaus conversation look like? Just work with me, right? This is just only one man's imagination. Yours might be different. It's a good question to ask yourself. So I imagine walking, not on the road to Emmaus, but walking in my ravine one day. Maybe walking with Pastor Chris or Pastor Sam or, or one of the elders. And we're deep in conversation. And I'm lamenting, he and I are lamenting together. About the condition of the church in North America. About the bankruptcy in our own lives. About the obstacles to the mission. About the apparent lack of concern amongst, widespread amongst Christians, especially in North America. And I'm, do we not need more power? And maybe a stranger joins himself to us. What are you guys talking about? We tell him, he says, why? And I can imagine myself turning around and saying something like this to him. Are you the only person in the whole church that doesn't know that this status quo is not normal? Are you the only person who doesn't know what God has done just in the last 300 years at various times when he broke in upon the church? Have you never heard of the 18th century awakening when the spirit of God fell upon five men in England? named George Whitfield and Charles and John Wesley and Howell Harris and John Sinek and through their preaching turned England upside down and saved it from a bloody revolution that swept France not too long after. Do you not know that at the same time across the Atlantic here God got a hold of a man named Jonathan Edwards in the, in the town of Northampton, Massachusetts and two revivals came in over a seven year period and launched this man into most, one of the most prodigious works of writing that this world has ever seen? Have you never heard that because of him there was a movement called Concerts of Prayer that got started that jumped across the Atlantic to Scotland and finally got into the heart of a shoe cobbler named William Carey who began to pray over a map of the world and ended up in India and modern day missions was launched because of that? Do you not know that a hundred years later in the 19th century the same thing happened? Not too far from here in Hamilton. Didn't you know that? A revival broke out that slipped Jumped across into a Dutch church In New, New York City And then to the city of Chicago and Two million people were added to the church In the next few years Did you never hear how that jumped across The Atlantic to Ireland And then eventually to the English speaking world Have you never heard of men like D.L. Moody and Dwight and Tory Whom God raised up Who crisscrossed North America Along with a student named John R. Mott who moved something called the student volunteer movement. And over the next 60 years, hundreds of young students went across to preach the gospel in various parts of the world. Did you never hear how Moody, right near his death in 1886, said, Oh God, send revival once again. And less than 20 years later, the Welsh revival broke out. How as a result of the prayer of a young 70-year-old man named Evan Robertson a Bible College, revival came and every church was filled in Wales for. Every night for 18 months in a row. Did you not know how a year later in a small town called Azusa Street in California, the Spirit of God fell upon a group of people and a denomination was born called the Assemblies of God as a result of which literally millions of people all over the world have come to the kingdom. And you're an alliance man. Did you not know that in 1907 at the Alliance Semin- uh, Assembly, General Assembly in Nyack, New York, the Spirit of God fell upon them and ignited a movement that has kept this denomination on track for world missions for well over 100 years. And my brother, we are hearing stories from around the world and every other country of these kinds of intrusions of the Holy Spirit that is being accompanied by signs, wonders and miracles. And we are lamenting. Why not here? That's what we are lamenting. I think that's what I would say. Do you lament sometimes? Remember folks, this amazing encounter with Jesus began with two people lamenting. Do you ever have conversations like that? You should. He might join himself to you. And preach a sermon. It will all happen in invisible reality by the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's keep exalting Jesus like we did today. The risen one. Let's keep celebrating the empty tomb. Because the spirit is poured out upon a worshipping community. Let's keep pouring out our hearts to him. In holy sacred conversations. In your life groups. In your triads. In your one on one sessions. In your own private personal communion with God. At our corporate prayer meetings on Tuesday afternoon and Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. We'll do it as a staff every Thursday afternoon. And invite this risen Lord Jesus. He's not dead, he's alive. He's not in the past, he's in the present. And we can say to him, do it again Lord. I want you to instruct my mind and inflame my heart and energize my body and open my eyes to see you in your glory. I have repeated that throughout the sermon because that's what I want you to remember. Instructed minds, inflamed hearts, open eyes and energized bodies. Can you say them with me? Instructed minds, inflamed hearts, open eyes, energized bodies. That's what Easter is all about. Told you, I'll tell you a second story, okay? And again, some of you long timers have heard this story once before, but remember, you're listening to it like a child, okay? This one was written by Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense. It was a movie that was made for television. And the movie opens with a woman being sentenced for the murder of her husband. And she is screaming at the jury and the judge. And she says, you will never keep me in this place. I'm going to get out and I will show all of you. The next scene cuts away to prison and she's in prison, dressed in prison garb. And she lives her life there. And one day she hears a bell toll and discovers in conversation that means the prisoner, has somebody has died in there. And late that afternoon, she hears a rattling sound outside her cage, which happens to look out into the courtyard, and she sees a a cart there and a funeral procession with a coffin set on it, uh, making its way to the cemetery that was just outside the prison gates. And the chaplain was going in front, leading the way, intoning it, and there was a little burial ceremony. She could watch all of that, and her mind began to hatch a plot. And so for the next several months, she went on her best behavior. And she slowly began to get rewarded with some privileges of mobility and whatnot. And she made friends with the undertaker. And she said, hey, I'll make it really worth your while because I do have lots of money. Give me the keys to the mortuary. Give me a copy of the keys to the mortuary. And the next time the bell tolls, I'm going to make my way into that mortuary. And I'm going to, in the dark, I'm going to lower myself into that coffin. And then after the burial takes place, it's only in the late afternoon, I can survive until you come out there and get me out. Well, this man had nothing to lose, so he agrees. And so she waits and waits and waits. Sure enough, the bell tolls. and She puts her plan into action. She gets her keys out and... Slips in when no one's watching, doesn't turn any lights on, feels for the coffin and steals herself against that contact with that cold flesh as she gets in. But she's sustained throughout by the possibility that it's working, it's working, in a few hours I'll be out. And sure enough she feels the coffin being lifted out in the courtyard, put on the cart. She feels the little bumps along the way. She even hears the intonations of the priest in the front and eventually she feels herself being lowered once again into the grave, and everything's quiet. And she is absolutely gloating with the prospect of success. But slowly the time passes, and the amount of oxygen in the, te- in the coffin gets lower, and she's beginning to wonder, what's happening? What's happening? Why hasn't he come? I told him I'd give him all this money. She puts a hand in her pocket, and she feels something hard. It's her cigarette lighter. She flicks the cigarette lighter on and the movie ends with her looking into the face of the undertaker. Her last hope for life was put in somebody who was dead himself. She looked for the living among the dead and found him hopelessly dead. I want to tell you something. A Jesus that is consigned to the grave of 2000 years ago. Or a living Jesus who only sits in heaven. Into the boxes that which you and I have put him in. He's no better than a dead undertaker in a coffin. But a living Lord of the universe. <laughs> who joins himself today to despondent people. Who are longing for meaning. Through relationship and mission. He's a God who still comes to instruct minds. Inflame hearts. Energize bodies. And opens eyes. Let's pray together. I want to pray first of all for. Anybody. There might be one. There might be two. I don't know you. Maybe you just wandered in here today. Because it's Easter. Maybe you came because. A friend invited you. Or maybe you've been coming here for months. Years. And Jesus for you. For all practical purposes. was A dead leader from the past. Or someone who sits in heaven. I would just like to invite you this morning. If you. Are one of those to say Lord I never knew I never knew that when you burst out of that grave you, you live and move in the places where I live and move I now understand why you had to die I now understand the meaning of the cross I now understand why Friday is good Friday and I now understand why the tomb is empty and I want you to come into my life to instruct my mind so I can think clearly than I've ever thought before That you can make my heart feel what it has never felt before. That you can keep opening my eyes to see you. And you can commission my body for a mission of telling others. If you're ready to do that today, I'll just ask you to follow me in this brief prayer. And then afterwards, please let one of the elders or the staff know and be happy to help you build on this beginning. Lord, I come this morning into your presence. I thank you that you died for me. I now understand the meaning of those songs that Joe led us in earlier. or the songs I've sung here often. I acknowledge that it was my sin that put you on the cross. And I thank you that I have absolute confidence of forgiveness of sin because you rose from the dead. I thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit who can take these invisible realities and make them real, tangible in my life. So Holy Spirit come into my life and conceive the life of Jesus in me. That I can feel the effect of that in my mind, in my heart, and in my body. In the weeks and months to come. And I pray this in Jesus name. And then let me pray for the vast largest number of us here who have done that. Who are related to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Lord I pray for them what I pray for myself. While my heart is full of gratitude for so many awesome things you have done and are doing. You, we, know, we know that you are not a God of the past tense. That you are alive today. And we know the people that you've touched. We know the community here that is being transformed in some ways. We know that you have sent workers from this church to the uttermost corners of the earth. And we know that they are touching people in Turkey and Tajikistan. In Sri Lanka and in Beijing. And in Africa and India, we're grateful. And Cambodia. But Lord, please, please don't let us get satisfied with the status quo. We offer our minds to you. Instruct us afresh. As we read your word. As we read books. As we listen to wise men and women. As we immerse ourselves in holy conversations with like-minded believers. Near and far. Instruct our minds. We offer our hearts to you. Lord, our hearts feel more at a baseball game than they ever do in church. Something's not right with that. Our hearts are more excited when the stock market goes up. When our business bottom line works better. Than when we hear a report of the advance of the kingdom somewhere. And as for our relationships, Lord... Every single one of us known what it is to be disappointed in intimacy. (laughs) Why would we ignore the only one who never fails us? Bring us back. Who us back to yourself? Lavish your love upon us, Jesus. And then we offer these bodies to you. Whether they are bodies of 15 year olds who have their whole life ahead of them. Energized, strong, healthy. Who can survive on two hours sleep. Or whether they are bodies of people who are 70 and 80 and 90. And everywhere in between. You can touch the bodies. The Holy Spirit can quicken our mortal bodies. So dispel sluggishness, laziness, indulgence. Breathe life into those bodies once again. That In in serving you on mission for God. We might be more alive than we have ever been in our whole lives. In Jesus name. On my recent trip, I learned something important uh, about prayer life from from someone who is a gifted intercessor who learned it in turn from other intercessors. And that is, whenever you experience anything of the reality of Christ within you, in any dimension of it, start praying for more and more and more. Don't ever be satisfied. This is one area of our lives where we are never meant to be satisfied with what we have. And so, I just want to bless you with a hunger for more. <laughs> Go in Jesus' name.